You're listening to the Yoga Inspiration Podcast with me, your host, Kino McGregor. I created this series to keep you inspired to get on the mat every day so that you can practice yoga and change your world, starting from the inside out, one breath at a time. Thanks so much for listening. Your support means everything to me. Hi, everyone. It's Kino here. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of the Yoga Inspiration Podcast. Your support means everything to me. This episode is an interview and discussion with Susana Barkataki, a teacher, inclusivity promoter, and yoga culture activist. We really get into the ins and outs of the student journey, discussing the traditional Guru Shishya tradition from India, as well as exploring the implications of cultural appropriation in our contemporary times and dive into what it means to really honor yoga's roots. I hope you enjoyed this episode and take a little bit of inspiration into the ancient tradition of yoga and how it can make your life a happier and more peaceful place. Hi, Susanna. Thank you so much for joining on the podcast. Hi, Kino. I'm so happy to be here. Thanks for having me. As you know, this whole series is about diving into the student's journey, and you are both a lifelong student of yoga and a 20-year kind of dedicated practitioner. So I'd love for everyone to really get a sense of what that means. So would you start us off by sharing what it means to be a lifelong practitioner of yoga? Where did you first start practicing? and What was your first interaction with this amazing tradition? Such a wonderful question. And my first interaction with this tradition that we all love so much was really as a child and getting guided from my family members, in particular from my father, who would say do different meditations or different guided relaxation when I was a kid and having trouble falling asleep. Or through my aunties who when I you know, had some kind of ailment or some problem, they would come in and have remedies or have pujas or different things that they wanted to do to help support my well-being. And so I was really lucky to grow up with kind of the folk knowledge of yoga that you know, my family didn't really share it as a formalized practice, but it was just a backdrop to our way of life. And so for everyone who's listening, would you share where your father's from and how you kind of sit in that, you know, folk knowledge of yoga? Yeah. So my father is from Assam, which is a uh, state in the Northeast region of India. And my aunts who are also Assamese, so that's, it's a, it's a kind of, um, smaller, you know, usually in India, there's, there's hundreds of different regional dialects, different languages, different cultures, and people don't always know that. They just think, oh, Indians are all one people that all speak the same language, and that's not true. There's so much regional difference. And so my aunts happen to marry Bengali men. And so our family is kind of a, a combination of Assamese and Bengali culture, which is like very, very culturally rich, um, has a lot of you know, art and music and philosophical, spiritual development that is unique to those regions and those, those parts of India as well. And you experienced all of this not in India. You were not in, in 
Mm-hmm. And that's something really relevant, I think, because when particularly new students of yoga in the West have an idea that, you know, the purity of Indian culture is within this little kind of idyllic garden that they many people create out of imagery in the mind or something seen in a movie or, you know, a National Geographic image or something. But for you, it was part of your family and you were experiencing that in this diaspora, like not within India. So where were you and how did that experience of having this deep spiritual tradition uh, kind of make you feel at the intersection of being, you know, uh, uh, in between two cultures. Yeah. And like you, you know, I'm mixed, right? My mom is British and that's been a huge part and an important part of my own development and growth because being mixed, being part British and then part Indian and growing up in the United States, which is where I lived, even though I was born in England, I grew up in the U.S. And so all of this kind of cultural um, melting pot that was my life was a process of really sorting through what do I want to identify with? What do I want to keep? And what am I going to, um, what am I going to let go? And so living in the U.S., I had a lot of influence on me to like conform and kind of become American, quote unquote. But what I noticed was that Americans didn't treat me like an American. Americans, and when we say American in general, like white, you know, people of European descent, they treated me like I was different and like I was other in some way. And so for a long time, the cultural aspects of my upbringing, including the practices, the foods, the clothes, those were all things I was actually trying to reject because I was trying to move away from anything that made me weird or off or different and and just wanted to fit in. So initially growing up, I would not have said, oh, I'm a student of Indian culture. I'm a student of yoga. I would have tried to hide that. And it only was later, you know, in my late teens and my early twenties where I started to realize, actually, it's really important to me to reclaim the wholeness of who I am to accept that and not just accept that, but explore it and study it. And so my own process of learning yoga, when I decided to formally become a student, was a process also of reclaiming those parts of myself that I'd been trying to like get rid of or mm-hmm. abandon. And so was there a moment in that experience where you, you know, where you had a realization, I want to be a student of yoga? And was that, and what was that? Was that like, now I need to go and take a yoga class? And, or, or where did that, where did that come from? And how did it actually play out in your life? You know, it's funny because even though I had grown up with the practice and had, had my family members sharing with me in these kind of informal ways, I it was in a YMCA yoga class at well during college, just a regular yoga asana class that didn't have a lot a lot of yoga philosophy or anything like that. None of the other limbs of yoga that I had been feeling a lot of anxiety and a lot of panic, uh, like many of us when we're going through difficult times or transitions, and so I had been super stressed out and really anxious, like having panic attacks at night and not really sure what was going on. Um, I even called an ambulance once and they came and they were like, wow, miss, you know, 
you're not having a heart attack. This is just, it's a panic attack. Like you need to figure it out. They weren't actually very helpful, but I, I, wow. I you know, it was, yeah, it was, it was it's actually a more common experience than many people realize that many people do show up at the hospital and think that they're having, you know, a heart attack or some other life-threatening situation. And it is actually just the debilitating effects of a panic attack. And it's one of these things that is not talked about how prevalent panic is and how much it is in the body. So it's actually more common than people think. And maybe there's someone listening right now that's been through that and maybe even felt, you know, shame or guilt around, you know, I can't, it's so embarrassing. I called the ambulance and, you know, I called 911 and then the paramedics came and told me I need to breathe. And right. it's, a more, it's a more common experience than, than, than many people think. Yeah. Thank you for really normalizing it because at the time I had no idea, right? I didn't know. Mm-hmm. I didn't also understand the negative effects that the amount of stress and like the mental thought cycles that were going through my mind that that was having on my body and my physiology and the feedback loop there that yoga is actually so useful and supportive. It can be, you know, a helpful supportive tool for managing, but I had no idea about any of that at that time. I was just, you know, trying to figure out how to survive on my own for the first time in an environment that was so stressful. And so I went, I think that next weekend to a yoga asana class at the YMCA. Mm -hmm. And during the class, I had an experience in Balasana and child's pose of just feeling absolutely, completely at home, like reconnected, mind, body. I was able to breathe. I was able to release. had tears coming down, but they weren't sad tears. They were like um, joyful, happy reconnection tears. And after that, I was like, oh, there is more to this practice than, than I realized, you know, that I had kind of, I think many diasporic children do this. We kind of reject the practices of our elders and we reject the practices of our, even our own culture. So I, I had been in a place of rejection and I realized, wow, there's a lot of power here. And so it was at that time that I had that mental shift of like, I'm going to work on reclaiming my relationship to this practice. But only a few years later, was I able to go to India and then formally study with a teacher. What led you to go back to India and, or to go to India and study with the teacher? And, and how did you choose your teacher? Yeah. So um, what led me to go was that same sense of like, who am I? What am I here for? Um, and wanting to really understand my roots, you know, so many of us, like we come from somewhere, there is some level of indigenosity that we all have, you know, from my British side, it's, I come from that land, you know, that island of Britain. And so, and I, because of the way my personal life had been shaped, I'd been to England a number of times, but I, and I was born there, but I hadn't, and I'd been back, but I'd never been to India for various reasons within our family dynamic, where in order to survive, actually, my father had very much kind of disowned his connection to that root culture. And that's another very common thing, a kind of internalized oppression that um, luckily didn't get passed down in that way to me. So I was excited to go back. So I saved, I worked as a teacher and um, taught English and history. And then I saved up enough money to go on my own and travel and see my family. So my first stop was was seeing my family in Assam and in the Northeast. And I have family in Delhi and um, all over, you know, all over uh, the subcontinent. And 
then I did a number of meditation retreats first. And I sat retreat, you know, silent retreat for a number of, of months. And after that time, this often happens, I think, in uh, when people do go and travel in India. I knew that I wanted to go to Bihar where my father had been a student. He went to the School of Mines in Bihar. And so I, I traveled there and I knew that he had had a teacher when he'd been there who had you know been kind of like a Vedic studies teacher. And so I looked for his teacher and through word of mouth found out that that teacher had passed, but that one of the, his students was still teaching. And so in that region, um, you know, it was really just kind of chance, like through family relationship and through word of mouth, I was able to to connect to Shankarji, who who became my teacher and who was teaching there still in just a small, you know, village in, in one of the poorest regions of India. He was teaching and he still teaches a number of villagers, like local villagers, school teachers, anyone who's willing to learn yogic, you know, yogic wisdom from him. Mm, that's really, really beautiful. So I feel like when there are students who are new on their journey and then they understand that yoga comes from India, then many people say, well, I want to go to India too. And I want to go and find a teacher and study, like, where do I go? So, you know, you had the connection through your family to a lineage and many people are lost out there and don't know, you know, who to study with. And I feel like what ends up happening is that they look for a retreat or look for a training program or something like this. But, you know, what, what do you have to say to, to new students who have this, maybe this little seed of, well, I want to go study in India also. What advice do you have to them? I mean, I, I, I don't know if everyone is going to be able to find a weaving path to, you know, a really, really special teacher. Um, for example, you mentioned that you did a lot of silent meditation retreats. Is that something you would advise people to start on? And, and, and what tradition were those in? Yes. So, <laughs> You know, it's it's tricky when we're talking about finding a teacher and, and say going to India because there's it's it's the same as here, right? Like if I was someone asked me, hey, I want to do a yoga teacher training, there's many different qualities and kinds of trainings. And the same is true in India these days as well, and, and probably always has been, that mm-hmm. there are different schools. And my main teacher always taught me, you know, look, like as as a teacher and, and as students of this practice, we don't talk badly about other traditions or other streams. We just say, you know, that's their path and, and this is our path. And so there, there are many different paths that coexist. And so really it's using discernment. Uh, for me, one of the biggest qualities that I look for is, is this teacher trying to take away the autonomy of the students and say, you know, and, and this is kind of, so I just want to be clear, right? Like, I didn't tell the story of how I came to find my teacher. Actually, I first rejected learning from him because, oh. yeah, no, <laughs> let's, 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 totally let's share that. Yeah, no, let's talk about that because you know it's definitely let's unpack that a little bit because I I think the way that the way that you shared the story it very much fits in with kind of the idealized you know story of and I traveled to India and in a remote village there's you know someone in the saffron robes and then right. I, and then I met my teacher but if you're actually saying that there was kind of a resistance and a rejection oh, yeah. 
no, let, let's share that because I think that's, that's very, very real, especially for, you know, again, many Western students of yoga are maybe even uncomfortable with the idea of someone in robes or, you know, or, 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 or you know, the embodying what may be understood to be a traditional student role. So tell me the story about the rejection. Yes. Like what, 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 what happened there? So you made right. the trip, you wanted to find a teacher and yet I found the teacher, right? I was working, I decided to volunteer at the school in the village that he was, was teaching, you know, where he was teaching. And I volunteered in a local village school because I, you know, I have a master's in education and I have a teaching credential. And in this particular region in Bihar, there's a lot of poverty. And so even teachers who teach, you know, I'm talking like kindergarten through 12th grade, they don't actually have a lot of instruction in how to teach. And so I was able to share. I wanted to use my skills and my knowledge and share while I was there. So I chose to do that, right? So I'm a, I'm a modern American, Americanized, let's say, woman, feminist, and, you know, a spiritual seeker looking for, for, teachings, but I'm still all of these things. And so when I met my teacher for the very first time, he was teaching in a way where he's up on a dais, you know, or like a a higher chair and the students, the other students are sitting below, like on a cushion or on a blanket on the floor. And so when I first saw that, you know, when someone said, here's the teacher that you're looking for, it's like, oh, cool. And I just walked right by. It's like, no, I'm not as a woman, you know, I'm not going to go and sit at the feet of a man, no matter what, you know, that was the, the story in my head and, and the um, resistance that I had. It's like, nope, thank you. I, I'm good. You know, I don't care if this, <laughs> this guy is, is the heir of the teacher that my father and his father had been learning from. It's, it's fine. I'm going to pass. And so I actually spent a number of months in the same place, walking by that room where he was giving teachings day after day after day. Now I like kick myself because that was a lost opportunity for learning, right? Months you say, but like months. months. Yeah. 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 And one day I I had to do something in the same room that they, they were in. And I heard him giving teachings on the Bhagavad Gita and he was translating, you know, but chanting and then translating into English and, you know, doing all, all sorts of things. And I was like, something that he said about the teaching that he was giving really struck me. And so I just sat down kind of automatically. And then I feel like for the next year, I didn't get up. You know, I just wanted the teaching so much that it it didn't even matter at that point. I was able to overcome my own um, resistance. And I also understood because I'd heard the way he was talking to the other students, that he wasn't putting himself above them. What he was doing was honoring the teaching. And he was following a structure that gave reverence to the teachings themselves. And so he didn't believe he was better than the students or that he as a man was superior to women. But I couldn't see that until that point. Um, Mm -hmm. That said, I don't blame myself for, you know, having those questions or having that resistance. I actually think that that's a really important quality to have as a student these days, especially, is to be learning. Um, I wouldn't have wanted myself to just blindly follow a teacher because there are there is so much abuse right within various and different traditions, whether it's spiritual, religious, even academic traditions. And so, one of his main teachings is actually to come to our own inner self authority, um, to question, kind of like Krishnamurti taught, like to question and question and question uh, what 
what is the point of truth? Like, how do I know what I know? And how can I be sure? And so all of those questions really did aid me in ultimately seeing like I can sit here and learn and not feel like I'm giving up my authority to someone else other than to like a deep willingness to understand spiritual truths. Mm-hmm. So I think the resistance that you're talking about is, is probably very, very common for many Western students, especially uh, those women who may have studied feminism, this idea of bowing down to a male authority or, you know, uh, submitting to uh, the, another human being is, is another thing that many people in the, the West are definitely raised with. So one of the things I'd like to really present to everybody who's listening is the traditional paradigm of the teacher-student relationship within India, um, often referred to as a guru-shishya tradition. And if you could share kind of what that is and how and, and how your teacher was perhaps, you know, representing that and, and also, you know, how you were resistant to that. Yes. Well, you know, and I would love for you to share a little bit because I know you also very much live and exist right within, you know, in that tradition so fully and and uh, also have a different tradition than mine. So my experience of it really is that the student, part of the role of the student is that we show up um, and, and ask or um, very respectfully kind of um, submit really ourselves at the feet of a teacher in order to request that the teacher teaches us and that the teacher traditionally will test students in some way in order to determine whether the student is really ready to receive teachings. And so um, there's a relationship of, of surrender and of devotion and of you know another word that i that i think of that's actually quite helpful is discipleship um being a disciple to the you know in this case ultimately i understood from my teacher it was really being a disciple of the teachings of yoga of of the teachings themselves more than him as a teacher but traditionally it would also be you know if your guru says do something you do what your teacher says you don't question yeah. and that part of your role is is really to um, follow to give up that sense of um, ego in mm-hmm. order to mm-hmm. humble yourself to a, a greater wise teacher. I, I, find that, that, yeah. I find that's so interesting, you know, because one of the things we're really good at in the West is ego, right? <laughs> like we're, we're we're pretty good about growing those over here in the United States. Okay. You know, we grow them, we elect them to political office, we you know idolize them, we we take real good care of the ego over here. So, and, and to the extent that even people on spiritual paths become quote unquote, like experts in their own problems, you know, I know what's wrong with me and I know what I need in order to feel good. And I don't feel good when I do that. And I need this and I need it done like that. And this is what works. And so we almost can feed a kind of neuroses with the, this somehow almost like a worshiping of the ego. So the idea of, okay, I'm going to go and be in this person's presence and they're going to tell me, get up at 3am and you're as a Westerner, you're first, particularly an American, you know, the North American from the United States, the first thing you're going to say is that doesn't work for me. Can we do it later? You know, right. and, and this is going to be this immediate kind of like, you know, can I make an adjustment so that it works better for me? And there's this, you know, self agency that on, on one level could be, it could be empowering. And on another level could be just fostering more and more of the ego. So this is a very delicate 
interesting space. And I kind of find that the the whole um, like knowledge framework of of sort of the, the Guru Shisha tradition as opposed to like Western pedagogical tradition, it's to be so fundamentally at odds, right? When I went to university, and I'm sure yourself as well, like what are the students encouraged to do? We're encouraged to discuss, to question, to talk back to the teacher, to ask challenging questions, pick holes in the teacher's argument, and then, you know, really make a, a voice for ourselves. In the Guru Shisha tradition, if you show up and you start like questioning the teacher and saying, you don't make sense in this way and that doesn't work for me, it's like, like, no, no, then you're the bad student. So this is, I think, really, really interesting for, for people, in the, the new students, particularly in the West, to, to hear that difference. And what's the happy medium in between of so much agency and authorship, so it feeds the ego, versus so much submission, so it can lead to abuse and disempowerment? Yes. And I think that's the, the tricky thing is because there is, you know, we've seen this in so many different traditions, but again, not just spiritual traditions, but also, mm-hmm. you know, education, um, entertainment, really different entertainment, right? It's <laughs> like any kind of organization that has different qualities that come to represent, you know, almost like cult leadership, right? Where, mm-hmm. where one's authority is placed outside of oneself and power dynamics are abused in some way, then there is often abuse that follows. And so we're really, I think, in this moment where, um, you know, and I don't have the answers and I, and I um, but I do have that question of like, how do we take the best of what it means to respect someone with years of experience, someone yeah. with deep spiritual attainment? Like, how do I respect their teaching, but then not um, fall prey to the, the, cause also that control or abuse of power that they, even a, someone who is spiritually realized that's ego too, right? So we can't assume that even someone who has attained different stages of enlightenment or moksha or whatever, isn't also going to then use their ego in ways mm-hmm. that are harmful to their students. And that's a new, like for me to say that within the tradition is totally like that's, that would be really problematic problematic for traditional teachers to hear me say that. I just want to name that, right? And But I can say that and I have to say that now because we're seeing so much that has gone awry. Um, and so, and because of the context and the social location that I'm in, which is, I was brought up exactly like you say, you know, with the university kind of model. And so my particular teacher and the reason I resonated so much with him is actually he has a very kind of public health very critical thinking, very um, populist view of the teacher-student relationship while being somewhat traditional, you know? So even though he carried forth some of the traditional um, trappings and practices, he, alongside me, I later came to to find out, he was teaching folks who were outcast folks. So traditionally, mm-hmm. a Brahmin teacher would never teach someone who was not right. within the caste system. It's just not done. And um, and he said, forget about that. If someone wants to receive the teachings, I'm going to teach them. I don't care where they're from or, you know, if they're Muslim or Jain or, um, or have no caste at all, it doesn't matter. And so he was very, and is very radical in that fashion. And for me, that was a, a great melding of kind of the ancient or the, the traditional and the more modern. And I think that same melding has to happen with uh, critical thinking we have to be encouraging and looking for teachers who encourage critical thinking and um, 
and also like accountability, like group accountability for each other, for ourselves as students, and then also for our, our teachers. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, there's so there's so much there that I think is so so useful for people to dive into. There is, I think, a myth and kind of you know a kind of legend what, that people have in their minds about you know how yoga was back in the day in this idealized mm-hmm. space where we were all one and everything was peaceful. But the ancient students of yoga, as you mentioned, were a very particular group of of, of students. You, know, you said your teacher was kind of radical in not teaching Brahmins. So yeah. what is what does that mean if for someone who doesn't know what a Brahmin is and mm-hmm. what was like what was the Guru Shisha tradition like thousands of years ago, primarily happening within a small subset of Brahmins within India? Right. So the the uh, Brahmins are of a caste. So the caste system in India was, as far as I understand it, was originally there to organize society and kind of have people in different groups based on what role they played. But like anything in um, structures of power, it power coalesced with the priestly class, you know, which is like the Brahmin class, those who later said we're closer to God. You know, if you want to get to God, you have to go through us. If you want to get to yogic teachings, you have to come to a Brahmin teacher to receive the, you know, the teaching or your relationship to the divine, um, any kind of boons has to come through us, right? So it was a way of, of creating a control dynamic within a social structure. However, my teacher also taught me and, um, and many other, I, I, in my practice and study in India, I also traveled and practiced with other teachers as well a, a little bit. And they also confirm this, that pre, you know, Brahminical Hinduism, there were practitioners of yoga. They may not have called themselves yogis or sannyasis, or, you know, they wouldn't have called themselves Buddhists or Hindus. They wouldn't have had names for it, but there were practitioners that were really more like outcasts, you know, like folks on the fringes of society who were, (laughs) now we might call them the weirdos or like the, the ones who are like this the way that society is being run isn't working. And, you know, they they didn't have cars or maybe not even fame, but like just modern or conventional trappings of comfort, like house, fields, cows, you know, our equivalent might be like the Mm -hmm. type of home we live in or the car we drive or all those things, right? How many followers we have, all all of those things that distract us. They were like, those things don't lead to happiness. So we are going to go and practice as intensely as possible so we can understand what leads to true liberation. And that those are, you know, yogic practitioners that we, that we as now, as students of this practice, they too are the practitioners that we can look at. And so yoga itself doesn't have to be mediated through a priestly class or through, you know, any kind of um, external external form of authority. And so there's kind of both. It's like it, it was happening in this way that was um, really organized and then also very revolutionary and kind of rebellious. Oh, I love that. I think that's a really good and important point to bring up that, you know, these this tradition of the, the forest dwelling yogis and those who kind of went against the grain of 
of the formal organized kind of gatekeeping structure of the priest class and that sort of thing. I think, I think that's a really wonderful, beautiful point to make up. Uh, and then women too, right? That's the mm-hmm. other thing. Because the other aspect of when we talk about like Brahminical yoga structures and Hindu structures is in Vedic practice, it's often, oh, it was men and men teaching men. Well, yes, that is true. That was the majority, but there also were many female yogis and uh, yogis who were, were non-gender as well or agender who just were, you know, even there are stories of, of people morphing between genders who were practitioners um, that more would have been in that like radical kind of counterculture group. So I think that's important to look to as well. That to me, when I think about myself as part of a lineage, I also think of of yoga as a lineage that is rejecting um, control, rejecting authoritarianism, rejecting these systems of of suppression of what it is to be an individual trying to seek freedom. One, what's so kind of empowering about that is the ability to claim a space within, you know, within a lineage uh, for, for many people out there that maybe have only, you know, tried yoga through the internet or feel like I've only done a few yoga videos and they feel unworthy and they feel like, gosh, well, if I read about the history of yoga, it sounds like it wasn't for me. And I don't know where I fit in with all of that because then you start reading about this formal parampara where it's almost like apostolic succession from, you know, the Catholic church down to our current Pope or something like that. It's like, oh, well, I have to find a teacher that fits within this kind of like family lineage that I can trace back. And if it's not that, then I'm unworthy. But what you're saying is that there are, um, you know, alternative kind of lineages that are out there that are possible for people to find and, and connect with. And, you know, I think this is, this is really insightful about offering another path and also contextualizing what is often thrown, thrown around as kind of like a, oh, well, yoga is not for you because it was only taught to Brahmin men thousands of years ago. And this really gives space for people to, you know, step into the tradition and, 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 you know, and, and really, as you say, honor yoga's roots without just feeling like they need to, you know, self-invent. So I, I, I kind of feel like what, what ends up happening for someone that feels like they don't find their place within, you know, yoga's rich history is then they create, they feel like they need to create something new. And they're like, oh, well, I'm self-taught. I invented this myself. But, it, you know, it's kind of like clearly not, you know. So what can you say to students who want to do the work uh, uh, that, that you're very much a pioneering thought leader and activist of, which is how can, how can students of yoga in the West honor and not appropriate yoga? Mm. Yeah, it's such a, a great question. I think we don't have to follow the traditional route, but we do need to explore all of what yoga is. And so by that, I mean, you know, looking beyond like practicing asana and, and really welcoming that in as, as a deep and consistent practice, but then also looking to yoga ethics, to teachers of yoga ethics. And that could be modern Western teachers of yoga ethics, right? There's going to be many different entry points for different people, um, but yoga ethics, so the yama and niyama, and also pranayama, breath practice, pratyahara, mindfulness, or kind of like sense withdrawal, and um, dharana, like uh, mindfulness. And so that's where, for me, actually, a big part of my own personal practice has been with Buddhist teachers or um, Zen Buddhist monks who teach mindfulness, because dharana is, is a practice of mindfulness. Whatever I'm doing, 
you know, you can't just like be mindful. You can't sit around and be mindful. You have to be mindful of something. So whatever it is, like right now, folks listening to this conversation, you're mindful of the conversation, but you're not hopefully just mindful of the conversation. You've got half your awareness inside, like 50% inside, mindful of your body. What's happening? You know, are you calm? Are you excited? Are you sleepy? Are you hungry? And all of that is a way of, of growing your sense of practice. So every moment can be a, pra- a moment of practice, not just um, moments when you enter a class or like a teacher's teaching you, right? So mindfulness, meditation, dhyana, and then samadhi liberation or, um, or coming together, you know, kind of a, an experience of oneness. And so all of those different, for me, a big part of what it means to really honor yoga's roots is to practice the full expanse of what yoga is and to seek out teachers who share that with us, of which there are many. And, you know, I can't say that like some, every student is going to find the teacher ideally that resonates for them, right? So so the goal is really just to be discerning in your own exploration for folks listening as a student, like who are the teachers who bring you alive, that you feel good around, meaning not just good like, like it strokes your ego, but like you feel like they're really helping you deepen and be a better version of yourself. Um, if you feel unhappy or small or critiqued, you know, or, or just like made less, then that may not be a true teacher for you, right? So using that criteria of like, how does it feel for me? Are they bringing me more into, um, into my own spiritual growth, my own personal growth? And then are they teaching the full expanse of what yoga can be as best as they can? I would say those are, are the main things that I look for when I look for teachers. And, and I hope that's helpful. Oh, absolutely. So when we take a look at what's advancing me in terms of my own growth, the, it doesn't always have to be that the teachers are saying, you're fabulous, you're this. Sometimes, you know, sometimes it's also that the teacher's providing you with contrast, you know, actually this, you know, you didn't do so well there. That's actually where you were out of alignment. You know, that statement wasn't really up to par or, or, or something like that. I think that that's also important to share with people because there is this kind of almost you know, addiction to feeling good all the time. And the spiritual work is often brings us into uncomfortable spaces. So if the, if there is a teacher that is just interested in, you know, making everyone feel good and it's only positivity all the time, then it's almost not a support to, to, to go in uh, to that, to that deep space. So, so spiritual growth, as you mentioned, someone can have the discernment to really think what, what's actually helping my spiritual growth. Oh, even though I felt the teacher was mean to me in that moment, they actually just said that I wasn't living the yamas and niyamas. And my reaction to that is more about my ego. Actually, I think I better stay and work on that, you know, whereas the other end of it, which we've seen in the yoga, in the yoga world, particularly has been so well-documented is that there are some teachers who are just, you know, disparaging and really put students down with no interest in the spiritual growth. It's a difficult space to navigate, you know, this tool of discernment that you mentioned, what do you say to students that don't have that cultivated yet? You know, there are so many young new students who fall in love with their yoga teacher and mm. you just like you fall in love with someone, you know, like a new love in your life. You're dating someone. You're like, this person's amazing. And you have the love blinders on. 
I feel like so many yoga students go through that and they don't have the tool of discernment and they can't make these rational empirical decisions. Like, let me look at the, you know, a common one from, from the, the Buddhist tradition is take a look at long-term practitioners and evaluate if they, if they're good people. But in that moment of love, that's like telling, you know, the, someone, Hey, go look at that person's exes. And, you know, if you feel like, yeah, if you connect with them, then maybe, you know, and it, it just won't work. So how do, how do new students navigate that space between falling in love with the yoga teacher and still keeping enough or cultivating enough discernment, particularly when people come to, you know, the yoga practice from places of hurt and woundedness, where that quality of discernment may be the very thing that needs healing. Mm. Oh, yeah. Well, I wish I could solve this, this problem for our love lives as well. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> right. Yeah, no, it's so, it's so, such a profound thing because there's so much beauty in that love that we feel, that first blush mm-hmm. of love. You know, and there is so much in that beginner's kind of mind of devotion and love for a teacher or for a practice or for a person when we're falling in love. And so, you know, I can't say what anyone else should do, but I know what I do is um, I try to, I I had a lot more success personally in my romantic life and in my spiritual life when I looked at those new relationships almost like a scientist. When I said, okay, I'm feeling all those, these feelings, but these feelings don't mean I need to act a certain way. I just need to observe and be aware of what I'm feeling. And, and then I use the yamas and yamas really as an underpinning, underpinning for my actions. Mm-hmm. So I turned back into the practice, like practicing non-harm practicing truthfulness, meaning I I would speak about what I was feeling to my teacher in this case, you know, I met my partner. So the person that I'm married to now and have a child with in a monastery, we met at a monastery and he was thinking of becoming a monk and I was thinking of becoming a nun, right? So um, that was the foundation. Yeah. For, for our relationship and we were spiritual friends, right? So I'll just take I'm going to take us on a little detour to answer this question, to share my my personal story here, uh, because it is so applicable. We became spiritual friends and we continued to learn and to go on retreat and to practice and see teachers like Thich Nhat Hanh and the Dalai Lama and, you know, different um, like lamas who had come to, to Los Angeles where we were living. And we realized about a couple months in, oh, there's something else going on here. This isn't just a love for for the spiritual practice that we both share. There is some chemistry that's happening. So what are we going to do about this? And we did make a choice at a certain point, like we gathered information, each of us, and we we kept communication open. And I said, look, I realize I'm attracted to you, but I don't think that means I necessarily have to do anything about it. And um, that was, you know, not received as positively, at least initially. But, um, <laughs> but then with time, it's like, hey, I'm open to exploring what this might mean in terms of a relationship, but we need to have the relationship be on the ground of the practice. So it needs to be on the ground, of especially the yamas and also the niyamas. And if we're in agreement on that, then we can move forward. And so we did agree to that. And actually that allowed for 
you know, I never, I, again, I'm like a, a revolutionary rebel woman. Like I never thought I'd marry. I never thought I'd have a kid. Right. So, um, I had no expectation for the life that I have now to happen. Uh, in fact, it had the opposite expectation. I thought I'd always be single and, um, and I was happy with that. And so I got to the point where every moment was just like a choice of, okay, with these values, we can move ahead. With these values, we can move ahead. And so the, the romantic relationship really became like a spiritual, a path of practice. And so even though we're not monastics, you know, he's not a monk, I'm not a nun, um, or a sannyasi, you know, we're not renunciate um, yogis, we're householders, we, we live in the world, we have a home, we have, we, you know, he has a job, I have a job, we have a kid, right? We're living a different kind of life than, than that that we both were contemplating, it all came through the exploration of continually applying the ethics, the yogic ethics. And so I share that to say, I think the same thing can be applied to finding a teacher or even like a spiritual community, right? Or even like a yoga studio community or an online community where you're practicing is like, um, apply the ethics. Does it feel is it is that community, is that teacher trying to reduce harm? Are they sharing truth? Are they inviting your truth? Are they practicing generosity? Are they inviting you to be generous? Are they inviting you to let go of attachment? You know, and do you feel like you can let go of attachment? Are they inviting you into self-exploration and joy? Right? All of the different elements that that form up a deep yoga ethical practice we can, we can apply, um, in that exploration. And so it certainly wasn't easy, right? It wasn't easy in my romantic life, wasn't easy in my, in my spiritual life. And it continues to not always be easy, but, but I do think yoga itself gives us very clear guidelines that we, we can do our best to apply. Mm. Oh, I love that. So it's, you know, there's really, there's, there's no time to lose really come into the practice and it's immediately thrust upon you, you know, and if you're feeling these waves of just love and adoration for the teacher or the community, it's not, it's not that that's a bad thing, but there's this, there's this qualifier of, you know, and make sure it checks, you know, checks off all the boxes of common good sense. And if something doesn't make sense to you, then, you know, like investigate it. Don't, you know, don't just immediately discount it. And I think that that's, but that's an interesting thing that seems to be happening in the yoga world today, whereas it feels like the whole Guru Shishya tradition is getting a bit of an update, you know, mm-hmm. so that if in the past it was very much expected, you know, the Guru says this and the, the job of the student is do it and don't ask any questions, then, you know, one of the things I think is important to also share with students is that, that there are different types of Gurus, you know, that there, mm-hmm. that there's a yoga Guru, someone who knows the knowledge of the yoga postural breathing system. And then there's like a Satguru who's an enlightened being. And like if you meet a Satguru, this is another, this is a whole other being, you know, the Buddha walks into the room and says, sit down and meditate. Like, hopefully it's quite clear that you should, you know? (laughs) And so, and then it's, and the, the, so the thing about the yoga gurus, I think is really interesting uh, to think about is that they're human beings you know, mm-hmm. human beings. And so if you operate from the perspective of that, the role of the shisha, the role of the student, the disciple is just total, you know, lay down at your feet, offer no feedback to exactly what you say. Tell me to jump, I jump, tell me to get water, I go get water, no feedback. 
Well, then what ends up happening is then the, 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 the guru's relationship and spiritual development is stifled, right? Mm-hmm. So that you don't know. And I say this to, to students when I'm, when I'm in the role of the teacher is like, please tell me how it's going for you because I'm, you know, I'm not in this psychic realm where I know exactly how you're feeling and what you're doing. I, I need you to, I need you to actually be present with me. I need you to talk to me and tell me what, you know, what's happening. And if not, then, uh, you know, and then I'm just in this bubble of, I think everything's great. So, so, so I, I think there is this update that, that needs to happen kind of in the Guru Shisha tradition and the, in the, what many people are calling like post-authoritarian yoga world for, 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 you know, for me, this is, it's been a process that I've been on because I definitely entered into a tradition where the traditional Guru Shisha uh, relationship was demanded and encouraged. And, you know, uh, although that definitely benefited me in in my tradition, it also didn't benefit many others and Mm -hmm. people had numerous different experiences. So what I would ask is, is there a global culture of yoga that seems to be happening where some parts of the questioning kind of you know, questioning individualist mindset of the West is merging and learning from the submissive surrender-based student-teacher relationship of the East. Is there a global kind of yoga tradition that, that seems to be happening that's inspiring students of the East and students of the West to come into this practice and create it anew? You know, yes, I I think there definitely is. And also some of those practices of questioning and of finding our self-authority and critical thinking have come from the East as well. You know, I think of Krishnamurti or, you know, different, even the Buddha himself, who's kind of a prototypical yogi, uh, where they, they taught us, don't believe me, try it for yourself find out for yourself and explore. And so that's always been there within the tradition. Um, or let me say that's always been there within the fringes, not so much <laughs> within the norm, within yeah. the tradition. And now it's more becoming the norm, I think, because uh, because it has to. And also, I think you're right. It is an update, um, which is, to me, a, a better a better application of how we can move forward with the a counter-authority you know, a more democratic, more um, inclusive, more inclusive of all different body types, gender experiences and expressions, right? Like all different backgrounds, all of those things are kind of more modern projects. Those are not like like a product of, of breaking down patriarchy, although it may have happened in some ways, I, we don't have data or, or evidence of that happening kind of in early yoga culture. Although it mm-hmm. may have been, it wasn't described or talked about. It's not in the text. Now, it doesn't mean it wasn't happening because often those types of things are not written about, right? Those, those side projects or, or kind of counterculture projects. But I do think we have this opportunity for, you know, some of the things that really help build this culture. I just want to kind of name them. And I think it's transparency, having cultures of transparency, humility, like you said, as a teacher, right? Like myself as well, I'm in the role of a teacher, whether it's in teacher trainings or giving lectures or talks or um, teaching on honoring yoga's roots. I, I am not a guru. And I, and I make that really clear to people. I am a human being who is sharing my experience, my lived experience and my knowledge. And I am, I see it as there's this web of knowledge 
Um, the text or yogic practice is one shining facet in the web. I am another facet. Each learner is another facet. And we're all shining light on this, this kind of um, expansive web of knowledge together. And that's a really different way of looking at learning and teaching than a more traditional, even in, in Western kind of understandings of how knowledge is pervade or like conveyed from like where students are an empty bucket and the teacher fills the pail, right? It's a different model and it's going to serve us in so many ways to have a decentralized model of learning and knowing and teaching. And so that's one is like decentralized, transparent and accountable. And mm-hmm. I think all of those things, and when I say accountable, uh, another example of what I mean by this is I went to see Thich Nhat Hanh, you know, so I was in my early 20s. He later became one of my meditation teachers and has been for decades now. And I'm ordained in, in his tradition as well. But I, as I went to my first retreat, I said to my mom, hey, mom, I'm going to go take retreat with this teacher. And I want you to notice how I'm being now and after I go and keep an eye on me to see if I start doing weird things, because I'm not so sure that this isn't a cult, right? Like I want you to really, and we all know Thich Nhat Hanh, like is, he's not a cult, but I didn't know, you know, and I wanted someone who I loved and trusted keeping an eye on me who could say before I was getting in too far, you know, you're, you're doing weird things. You're at, and, and of course we have to have someone we trust, like a friend, you know, it may not be a family member. In that case, I was lucky enough to have that relationship with my mom. But, and she said later, and I brought her actually to see him talk when he gave a public talk. She's like, I think you're okay. I think you're going to be okay. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. I mean, what a blessing to be his student. Yeah, it's such a blessing, but also um, that accountability. And so even still when now for folks listening, right? Like as you go to learn with a teacher, bring a friend, have someone come with you, have someone listen to a talk to or read their book to, you know, and, and have, it's a fun way to also deepen and connect with these people that you love and that you want to build trust and, and deepen your relationship with anyway, but then they get to see how and where you're going and what you're deepening in and kind of offer you feedback on yourself and that way of building accountability, but also accountability for yourself, but also with the teacher as well. And asking them, you know, what are the processes for feedback? If something happens in your yoga school, right? Like Mm. that makes someone uncomfortable. How do you handle it? Um, Those kinds of questions we as students get to ask now. And and there should be a process for responsiveness on the part of of any teacher. Absolutely. I love that. So are these qualities that you think are, need to be present in a community and, and, or, is the responsibility then shared between teacher and student and then co-created? I think absolutely. Yeah, it, it is. And I very much think a lot of my work centers around looking at power and the, the correct and kind of right use of power. And so although they're definitely co-created, when I'm in the role of teacher, um, whether that's in my K-12 role when I used to teach students there or when I'm teaching students in a yoga teacher training, for example, I'm clearly aware that I have more power than the students do, institutional power, right? Power given to me by whatever um, authority, like in the U.S. or in the West, sometimes it's Yoga Alliance, right? If I'm running a Yoga Alliance school, um, but also kind of like the power you're describing where the students fall in love with the teacher and they're 
um, entranced by our qualities, whatever those are. Yeah. Like we know when you get deeper and deeper into yoga practice, there are boons, there are benefits that come. And so sometimes those boons, those benefits can like be really enchanting and that's great, but there's power and responsibility that comes with that position. And so in that sense, although it's co-created, if I'm in a position of power, I feel as a teacher, I need to take absolute care and absolute responsibility for that power. So for example, something really concrete is I would never um, enter into a romantic relationship with a student no matter what, right? And I think that just should be across the board for, for yoga teachers who are in, because we're always in a position of power. Even if we say, oh, well, it was consensual, they were, you know, overage or whatever, it doesn't matter. We're still in a position of power. And so teachers do need to take um, extra, almost beyond, beyond what you would think of um, in terms of ethical considerations in order to address that power imbalance that exists, which is not there to disempower the student, right? It's really Mm -hmm. there to take care of the whole relationship. Oh, absolutely. No, I completely agree with that in terms of, in terms of a really clear line, you know, I've known a few yoga teachers that 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 maybe wanted to date their students, and then you know, it had either talked to me about it, and my advice to them was, if you feel really, really strongly about it, then that person can never be your student again. Yeah. So if you if you cross that line, then then that relate then that student teacher relationship is now over. But it, it's dangerous. I feel like even if you say that, then it's still that power dynamic is going to take a long time to work itself out to a point of equality in the relationship. So I, I definitely agree that, you know, no romantic relationships between teachers and students. My, my husband, he's from Denmark and Tim often jokes about everything that's illegal in Denmark, but it's illegal for a teacher in Denmark to have a romantic relationship with a student, a teacher of any type. So it's this recognition of the of the power dynamic that's there. So if there are any students that are listening that, you know, end up uh, in the situation where they're asked by their teacher to go on a date or, you know, to hang out after hours or something like that, and it feels a little off, you know, please understand that that, that is a little bit off. And if you want to pursue that, set up some really, really clear boundaries and say, well, if you know, if I've gone on a date with you, I'm never your student again. And take a long time to really, really think about that because it's a relationship that once changed can never, can never go back. And, and, you know, when we're talking about the vulnerability of the student, you know, and the, the, the teacher being in a position of power, that beauty of falling in love with the teacher I think is actually, you know, uh, the beauty of falling in love with the teaching of yoga, what the teaching of yoga represents, those tears that you said you cried when you were in child's pose, the idea of really opening to oneself, you know, in the spiritual tradition. So if the teacher then in any way harms that, this is like an irreparable harm. It takes so long to, you know, repair that, 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 that genuine you know, desire for liberation, that heartfelt love for the practice. It's, it's, a, it's like this really, I see it as this kind of really, really sacred gift and responsibility. Mm-hmm. You know, when someone comes with their vulnerability and their hurt and says, this has healed me and I want to go deeper into it. If that then turns into, and I want to go out with you on Thursday night, it's like, it's just not, you know, it's almost the, I don't know, I think it's a line that shouldn't be crossed in, in, in the most, the most sacred sense. So I don't know if there's someone that's going to be listening to this, that's going to, 
you know, need to benefit from that or, 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 or have that heard. But I think from the student's perspective, it, it's super important because there are some things that we can't put on the students because they're, they're newer and, you know, it's the tradition and they're at the, they're at the, the end, they're at the bottom end of that power dynamic. So I thank you for your work in educating teachers and for helping those bounds be, those boundaries be really, really clearly established. So I have one last question for you. And this is a question that I think uh, many people who are newer to the practice might not fully understand. And we'll change gears just a little bit. Uh, and that's, you know, when people who are newer to the practice, love the practice, and then they hear, you know, don't engage in, in cultural appropriation. They don't know mm-hmm. what that means. They're like, so does that mean, like, can I not chant? Can I, like, what mm-hmm. can I, there's like this list of like, they're like what, what am I allowed to do? And I feel people get, you know, get genuinely confused and, don't understand. So would you give like, would you be able to give one concrete example of what would be an example of cultural appropriation and then an example of how to participate in something along the same lines in a way that would be, that would, that would be honoring rather than appropriating? Yes. So you can look at it, cultural appropriation versus cultural appreciation, let's say. Um, Cause I always love to talk about, well, okay, if there's like, what not to do, what should we do. Right. The difference is um, with cultural appropriation, there's a power imbalance and there's harm caused, right? So there's some kind of different differential, power differential, kind of like we've been talking about, someone from outside the tradition, so non-Indian, right? Like, um, And then harm. And harm can be material harm, like stealing or profiting from, or it can also be disrespect. And, and it's important to kind of elucidate both of those because just for example, when I'm walking with my family members, like my aunts or uncles in Venice Beach, right? We live at the time, you know, and, or if I'm visiting and we're walking in Venice and just looking at the stores and they have a, a t-shirt with a picture of a deity, you know, say Ganesh. And in one hand, he's got like a cigarette and in another hand, he's got a glass of alcohol in another hand he's got you know a gun or whatever their response because there are shirts like that or the namaste in bed shirts or the different things right yeah namaste all those things it's like don't they understand that that is sacred like that 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 word that deity is a manifestation of the divine and of the divine potential in them. Why are they doing that? And it's like, it hurts them. Like I can see on their face are like confused. Like we wouldn't do that with Jesus. We wouldn't do that with mother Mary. You know, we, we just like, you don't see those things because, and so, and that is really important because it's harm on the level of, of disrespect. Right. And so I use those examples because it's helpful to be able to picture it. So power differential and harm. And yet on the side of cultural appreciation, we're actually preserving the culture, right? We're taking respectfully, I don't even want to say taking, we're like embodying and using and transmitting and learning the culture in a way that continues to preserve it for ourselves and for future generations. So concretely, someone who says like, or asks the question, hey, you know, my yoga teacher is chanting in Sanskrit at the beginning of class. Is that cultural appropriation? Well, no, right? Like if they're, if they're chanting and they're chanting intentionally, they're using the shlokas appropriately 
and they're doing it in order to continue the tradition, that is actually preserving the tradition. And so for you personally, you get to decide, like, I'm not going to tell you, you have to chant or you shouldn't chant. That's a personal decision, but choosing to chant in another language that is the language that the practice comes from, to me, that is preservation of the culture, not appropriation. Mm -hmm. Now, if you took that sloka, that chant, and you used it to market, you know, your like new app, that's cultural appropriation. I hope that for folks, that distinction is starting to become clear. It's like when you take something out of context, when you take it and put it in a new context, when you use it to sell or to profit from in some way, then it's appropriation. When you're just learning and studying and trying to practice something in its full entirety and depth, um, first of all, you might be kind of new. And so you might be worried, am I saying these things wrong? And so hopefully your teacher is like breaking that down for you and and saying it's okay, you know, if if the intention is what matters. So do your best. You'll learn with time. Like, we don't all come out knowing how to ride a bike, right? We have to practice. And so it is more than okay to practice um, your yoga asana, your pranayama, your, your breathing, your chanting, your mantra, your mudra, your gestures, right? The, the goal actually in my mind is that we do practice and share all of the depth of the tradition. And so those things are not appropriation. Those are actually cultural appreciation. Is that? Yeah, um, yeah. I love helpful? that. Yeah, absolutely. I think so, for sure. So for students, you know, who come into, new into the practice that, that, that don't know about kind of what these sacred symbols are, it can often just look like something new and exotic. So what you're mm-hmm. advising is, you know, although it may, it may you, know, you see an image of Ganesh, take a deeper look and make sure it is actually respectful of what that what that image and iconography is supposed to represent, that that is a representation of the divine. And if it is in some way out of alignment with that, then perhaps uh, reconsider whether you want that t-shirt. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And then try to learn, right? Like use it as an opportunity to learn. Or if say like a yoga teacher has it on their shirt or, you know, in their studio, then ask them, something really sweet, not oppositional, not like, hey, you're cultural appropriating, but like, hmm, can you tell me more about this? I'd love to know more about what the statue or this image represents for you. And just get into conversation, start mm-hmm. to open things up and learn more. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Because then there there are yoga studios that have dedicated altars and then you walk mm-hmm. in and you might not know what that is. And so then you think, oh, well, it's a Western person, so they must be appropriating. But no, not necessarily. Like, you know, my my husband at our yoga center has taken a, 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 a very painstakingly created you know, as much as he could a traditional altar and, you know, brought back a statue of Ganesh that was made specifically for the altar in my, you know, from India and brought it back over. And so, so like, so that, and that's a really interesting thing to add, to come from the perspective of asking questions, you know? So if you see, if you see something that maybe you have a question about, ask, and then it can be part of the learning process. And then that goes back into empowering the students, points of discernment, mm-hmm. saying you are allowed to ask questions. You don't need to either keep your judgments private or you know your thoughts private, your questions private. And at the same time, you do have this space to ask. So I really like that from both perspectives, you know, empowering the student and then opening up the, the dialogue and normalizing questions. I think that's awesome. Yeah. So now, as we just talked about normalizing questions, I usually like to ask 
uh, the person who I'm chatting with if they have any questions for me. So I think this is probably a good time for me to turn that over to you to see if there are anything that you'd like to chat about from, from your perspective with me. That's so great. I love that. Kino, thank you. <laughs> and I think my biggest question for you is, you know, you come from within, within a traditional lineage and yet you also are really modernizing and kind of sharing yoga in this way with so many new folks. And so how do you, in your own practice, but also in how you share about yoga, how do you honor the roots of yoga? Um, and what are the things, not just how do you do it, like what are the things that you really think about as like, ooh, this is really important. Like I need to keep this um, as, an, as an inner barometer, as an inner guidance for me as I'm sharing? That's a super good question. And it's something I think about, you know, almost every day. There was, there was a time in my, uh, in my progression as a student and as a teacher that I thought that the only way that I could honor the tradition was to teach it exactly as, as it had been taught to me. And so I mm-hmm. felt like, that, so I was there just trying to be an exact copy of what my experience was. And just like, if it was outside of that, it would not deviate from that. And so I felt like, this big responsibility for a period of time to, to be exactly into exactly as I learned it from my teachers in India. And it was that or it was nothing. And I, I stayed on that course for, for, for a good while. And then there, there were some changes when I started to dive deeper into kind of the spiritual journey and be like, well, actually what, what was it about that experience? What, what was the, what was the essence and the elixir of it? And to look sort of outside of the context of only the laboratory of asana to include as you mentioned the other limbs of yoga to include the 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 true and higher arching goal of self-realization of elevation of consciousness of the realization of the divine within oneself and within one's life and then to think about to think about that and so when i sort of held that as the highest principle it's given me space to then really recognize Actually, the, the group of people that I learned from and I learned with were a very particular, smaller subset of society. So when I go and I practice in India, I look around the room and the room is filled with um, very fit, very able-bodied people. Mm-hmm. And occasionally you'll have someone that's outside of the mold. Like there, there's always a story of, yes, I saw somebody that was a double amputee and then they came in and I saw an, an elderly woman, 80 years old, and she came in and did the practice. And I saw, you know, a bigger bodied student and they came in and did this. And there was, and it would be uh, not the norm. The norm it, it, in, in my tradition is, you know, very fit, very able-bodied, very capable, strong, flexible, can do, you know, and, and at some moment I realized, wow, this is exclusionary. And I don't think this is benefiting that true, deeper, you know, deeper mission of yoga is to awaken spiritual consciousness. So I sort of, I let go of the need to recreate the kind of dogma of what I learned and kind of moved beyond that to be more inclusive to say, okay, well, what, what I'm here to do is to create a space of spiritual learning that's rooted in these ancient traditions that I've received. And so what is that about? So in every class for me, I make sure to talk about the spiritual journey. I make sure to say that asana is a tool and not an end. And I talk about my teachers, 
you know, even if I'm teaching non-traditionally, because I think that's important for people who may be looking at me thinking, wow, you're amazing for me to say, you know, I have a teacher and I'm sharing with you the things that I learned along the path so that they can help you like they helped me too. So to keep this element of humility in whatever it is that I'm communicating. And I think for me, that's been a shift out of what I thought it meant to honor the, you know, the teaching that I'd received into kind of honoring the larger spiritual tradition. I feel like what happens mm-hmm. where we are right now in, in this world of yoga is that so many people, uh, no matter where they are in the world, they've got these imagery of yoga presented to them. You know what I mean? So then they come into it and they're like, wow, I also want to look like that. I want that body. You know, I want, I want those arms or I want to lift up like that. It looks so powerful. I want those, those abs or something come in and that's our entry point into yoga. And so I feel as a teacher to honor yoga's roots, it's my, it's my responsibility to say, listen, this, you can totally walk in the door for that, but I have to let you know that yoga is about so much more than that. You know, that, that you may get that, but it's a byproduct. What you're going to, we were really going to get is this elevation of consciousness, this, you know, total spiritual transformation that's going to train your mind and change your whole life, you know? Mm -hmm. And then, and then of course, always encouraging and referencing as many of the, uh, as many of the spiritual texts that are possible to make reference to. So this is, this is actually my husband is even, even better than I am about contextualizing every, every answer to a student question in some reference to some of his philosophical studies. So for him, for him, even more so than me, I think he feels like everything he says, if it's not backed up by Patanjali, if it's not mm-hmm. backed up by the Upanishads or something from the Vedas or the Samkhya Karika, then for him, he feels like he doesn't have anything to say. Mm-hmm. And so that's like a dialogue that we talk about that for him, he feels like, again, if, if any, if any answer he gives can't be traced back to textual scriptural evidence in the tradition, mm-hmm. then he feels like it's not an answer. Mm-hmm. You know? <laughs> that's so beautiful. And I appreciate it so much because you're also sharing the kind of different ways of doing that, like the different ways of honoring yoga's roots. But what they have in common is like whether it's a lived experience and sharing your journey from, it sounds like also like yoga asana and yoga as as very much a kind of external practice, but your own spiritual journey. And you're inviting students into that and naming that and sharing that and really giving a spiritual lineage acknowledgement. I like to, you know, we talk about doing land acknowledgements. We talk about sharing our pronouns. These are things that are practices that are important for including the land that we're on, including um, all people and all genders and how, how people identify, but also like literally acknowledging the lineage. Like how many classes do we walk into? And the teacher doesn't say, you know, what I'm teaching is a practice that comes from India. It's a practice that uh, my teacher and they name their teacher or their teacher uh, and their teacher have practiced for thousands of years, not in a way to share ego, but in a way to actually be humble. Like mm-hmm. I'm sitting at the feet of this tradition and we don't also sometimes in the, in certain lineages, we don't identify so much with those teachers anymore. We may not identify with teachers if, you know, we we just have moved into a different space or a different relationship mm-hmm. with a tradition, but we can still honor that broader lineage. Like, yeah, like saying, you know, this history that your husband is thinking about of codification and practice and, you know, thousands and thousands of years of textual knowledge. And so giving that acknowledgement is, is so huge something I think about a lot too. So hmm. thanks yeah. for sharing that. Oh, absolutely. So Susanna, you have a new book 
that is coming out soon. And by the time we share this podcast, people will be able to buy it. So where can people find your book? Yes. So it's called Honor Yoga's Roots, Courageous Ways to Deepen Your Yoga Practice. And it shares really a framework to do a lot of what we've been talking about today, looking at the aspects of the real world, like what separates us, how we apply those in our own lives and how we can reconnect, take action, and then come to an experience of deepening our own practice and creating liberation for ourselves and others. And so you can find it, you know, wherever books are sold on Amazon, um, on my website, which is Susanna Parkataki slash book. Um, and I hope, you know, I really, my intention with this book is it's not just something that you read once, but it's like a workbook. It's a book that you read and you perhaps disagree with, right? And then write some some notes and then put down and then come back to and read and then ask a friend what they think and then read and put down and practice some more. And really it's, it's something to be of support through a, a whole lifetime of practice and deepening and honoring those roots. Oh, I love that. And I've taken a little bit of a peek at it and I really recommend it for everyone, whether a yoga student or yoga teacher who's interested in doing this really, really important work to honor yoga's roots. Yeah. Super. Yeah. Thanks so much for coming on this podcast. I really appreciated it. And I hope everyone feels a little bit of inspiration to dive deeper into the whole total journey of yoga. So thank you so much for joining. Thank you. And thanks everyone for listening. Hey there, it's Kino here. I just wanted to thank you for tuning in to my podcast. Your support and your time and your attention really mean a lot to me. If you're enjoying this podcast series, you can find the full-length videos on my online channel, OMSTARS, and that's at www.omstars.com. You can redeem a 14-day free trial and get access to our full library of over 3,000 classes and also practice yoga with me online. I'd also love to see you in class sometime. So you can find my full live in-person teaching schedule on my website, which is kinoyoga.com. And if you haven't checked out my books, I'd absolutely be honored if you'd check those out. You can find those available at any online bookseller. The Yoga Inspiration Podcast is designed to keep you inspired to get on the mat. And I hope you're leaving each episode with a little glimmer and spark of the spirit which is the true heart of the yoga method. Thanks so much for tuning in, everyone. May you be happy. May you be peaceful. May you be filled with love. Namaste.